Welcome to the Crowdmakers, inside the C-suite of sports and entertainment, the definitive podcast on the inner workings of the business side of professional sports, concerts, and live events. These are the people that are shaping the new landscape of the industry, the executives that are creating the new paradigm for live entertainment. These are the inside conversations you won't hear anywhere else. These are the Crowdmakers. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the digital training network that uses micro-learning and spaced repetition to form new habits of success in sales, service, leadership, and more. Created by sports and entertainment industry experts for the industry. Learn more at ISBI360.com. And now, here's your host for the Crowdmakers, Bill Gertine. Hello again to the Crowdmakers. It's Bill Gertine once again. And with me is a very special guest from the entertainment industry. You know him for his music from 20 albums worth. He has performed thousands of shows. His road goes on forever. Please welcome singer, songwriter, entertainer, producer, and businessman, Robert Earl Keen. Robert, welcome to the Crowdmakers. Uh, I'm happy to be here, Bill. Thanks, thanks for having me on. You know, you're one of those artists that has been on for on the road for so many years, decades, in fact. Mm-hmm. Most everyone in the biz could tell you where they were on that day in March last year when they first learned that things were not going to be quite as they used to be and they'd be shut down. Where were you at that moment? Take us through what the situation was like for you. Uh, the very last uh, show I played was in New Mexico, and um, it was outside. It was it was in Roswell, and um, <laughs> which now that I think of that, that's a very strange place to 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 have some kind of epiphany. But uh, it was uh, you know there was the it was already starting to have some of that anxiety and. Um, people not knowing what to do in in the audience and you know which way do i turn how close do i get to people and that was on the 12th of march and afterwards uh we have we have a little uh, house out in marfa texas and uh they dropped me off there in in marfa and i had uh, talked to my uh, booking agent uh, keith levy uh, at paradigm which has just changed to wasserman music um and um he he said that there were going to be some big announcements, not things that uh, a lot of people did, wanted to hear uh, within his within the booking agent. And um, when he said that, I said, "Oh, it's it's shifting." And then he then he went ahead and started giving me. So this was the you know second third week of March, you know, somewhere in that week. And um, and you know at that point. I was number one. I was really glad I was out in Marfa, just sort of being able to be able to think and not uh, bang around and make any kind of rash decisions. And um, uh, but that was that was the lightning moment there for me. Is there anything in your career that you could compare it with? Uh, uh, well, nine eleven would be one. I, I was nine uh, eleven. I I had decided to promote uh, the brand new album that I had coming out. Uh, in Santa Cruz, California, and uh, because I have a re- I have a really good following out there, and I thought it would be nice to kind of be start a record out in somewhere other than Texas, and uh, I went to um, I, I I was out there ready to had a whole lot of uh, press set up, and I had a whole lot of record in stores that those were real popular back then, and. Um, uh, the guy that came out with the record company at the time I was with Arista Records, the guy that they sent out there with me, 
knocked on my door at uh, 6 a.m. So the three hour time difference was uh, significant. And um, uh, we, we watched, uh, you know, just all unfolding. And that, um, that one was, um, that was quicker and a, and a bigger shock. And um, even in some ways more uncertain. And uh, we, we ended up uh, having to call a bus company and come out and, and pick us up out in California and just rode a bus all the way back to Texas. And uh, wow. I think we did those two days that the first two days, it hadn't really sunk in. So we did some of these uh, press things and some of these in-store things. And, but you know, there was a cloud yeah. over it all. Well, the, one of the reasons I wanted to have you here on the program is that you're a businessman, like many of the businessmen and women who are regular listeners here. And just like them, you've got a staff that you were faced with a decision about regarding back in March of 2020, when it became apparent we were going to be shut down for a while. Mm-hmm. I understand that many of the top names in Nashville chose to let all those types of people go, mm-hmm. but you didn't. You bit the bullet. You decided to keep them all on. Bring us mm-hmm. through that decision, and, and what led you to that conclusion? Well, once again, it was uh, it was a good thing that I was out in Marfa there by myself, and um, I thought about it for uh, two or three days, and uh, and I have always believed that the people around you make you, or they break you, and the people that I, I've had work for me, some of my uh, some of my band members have been with me over 25 years and um, I have, you know, everyone, I don't have a lot of turnover here. I just, people stay here and, and um, they, you know, I felt truly a moral obligation to do everything that I could to keep everybody uh, together and safe and, um, you know, kept out the insurance and kept the, uh, 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 the, the salaries and just, um, and from that moment on, I really never, I really never looked back. I never had another thought of, you know, Oh, maybe I've made the wrong decision. I just kept working towards making sure that, um, I could keep the whole thing together and, uh, continue by hook or by crook. Yeah. And what sort of staff are we talking about here? Just for everyone's kind of understanding what, what sort well, of, I have, I, have have? A, I have a band and there's, and there's uh, six, uh, six of us total, including myself, then a, a bus driver, a road manager. Uh, I have um, the, my office here, which is uh, my director of management and, and then my uh, creative director. And then, then also uh, uh, the person that just takes care of everything else, Nicole. And um, uh, so um, we're talking 11 people, I believe, 12 people like that. And, and everybody's on salary. Everybody has insurance. Substantial for someone like yourself, who is an independent businessman and Absolutely. just trying to keep things going. Now, mm-hmm. I understood that you decided you were going to do everything possible to keep the music alive during this time. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I understand you did some incredibly inventive things like mm-hmm. the Ryman situation. Describe how the Ryman uh, performance took place. Uh, we do, we've, for the last, I, I would say, eight or so years, we've done a Christmas show that was uh, decidedly different than our regular show, the things that people come out and see us. And it's more of a, I'd say, Bill, it's more like a variety show where uh, we kind of ham it up and there's lots of kind of joking. And we built this huge set. And at that time, we carry another four or five people <laughs> along with us just in, in order to, we, we have a truck full of props and we have uh, people that 
set up all these things. And so it's a, it's much more of a production. And um, I realized on this Christmas business that uh, I wasn't going to be able to carry all those. Many of the promoters, as a matter of fact, many promoters had gotten where they had limited even the stage access. So you would have to have fewer people. There were a lot of shows that I was in, I was asked to do where it would just be, it would just be me playing solo, which I, I, I really, that's a whole nother story, but I didn't take those. And um, so we did the best we could as far as like trying to create a show that didn't require so many props, so many people. And we uh, did it all through lighting. Um, um, I had one uh, guy that works for me uh, <clears throat> on a peripheral basis that came in and learned how to do the lights out at the Snake Barn video studio that I, I built. And uh, we had a lighting uh, lady that's just fantastic, Wendy, um, who I'd worked with before. And, and she would sit in her house in, uh, I'm sorry, but it's either Houston or Dallas. She'd sit in her house and she did it all remote. So she wow. would call the shots and, uh, Austin would uh, do the shots there at, at the Ryman. We did it also at the Moody Center in, in, Aust in Austin and, and a couple other places. And so we built a show basically just around some costuming on the band and just lights. So we didn't have all that set. So the, the, basically the stage was blank except for the instruments. And, but we didn't have, um, we just, and, and so then the set was lighting and costuming. So, um, and it worked really well. As a matter of fact, it was, it was so good that I went, why didn't I think of this before? <laughs> and how many were you able to put in the pews at the Ryman for that? Uh, that one was severely limited as far as the, uh, as far as their requirements for social distancing. So I would say, you know, the Ryman caps out somewhere around uh, 2,300 mm -hmm. generally on a, you know, regularly year. I think they had about 400 people in the pews and, uh, but they also streamed it. So um, there was quite a number of people that uh, tuned in on the streaming. So that was definitely helpful on the, as far as like the gross potential at the end of the day. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you've recorded 20 albums. You, your songs have been recorded by some of the most well-known names in country and bluegrass and even pop. You've had songs done by George Strait, Montgomery Gentry, Lyle Lovett, Sean Colvin. You're in the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Texas Cowboy Hall of Fame. Don't know how many people can say that. Uh, BMI, one of the most prominent music licensing houses in the world, actually created an award for you in 2015. I'm not sure if that's because they've given you everything else and they had to have one more. Uh, but fans of this podcast may know you best for this. Let's see if you can pick this up. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yes, Bill. <laughs> I know that song. <laughs> right. Well, for those who know it, certainly the road goes on forever. It is the song that's played after every home game of your alma mater, Texas A&M. The big question everybody wants to know about Robert Earl Keane is, were you thinking about the Aggies when you wrote that song? I was wearing a maroon. I had one of my favorite maroon T-shirts on at the time, uh, and I will. And uh, no, I want the answer would be no. However, I would like to say that I I graduated from A&M with a, a degree in English literature, and um, had it not been for that background, I I couldn't have written about half the songs that I've written. Not that I wouldn't have written songs. However, the 
the way I approach songs and how words fit together and some old forms that you find in romantic poetry. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I stick to those and those help me through that. And that particular song there um, has a sort of a storyline that's in a, in a way a classic storyline where, where the, the person that you're really focusing on uh, is the one who really gets thrown under the bus and the other person uh, managed to escape. And so um, that, that I don't believe that uh, that, that would have come naturally. That was, that had to do with, you know, learning some things about uh, how stories were, were formulated. Well, that's fascinating that you had this English lit degree mm -hmm. as an artist. And many people don't take the writing of the lyrics as seriously as you do in the music business. It seems mm -hmm. as though the mm -hmm. emphasis has always been on, you know, the blues and the, the actual chord structures and such, but you really took mm -hmm. it from a different angle. And that's the, the structure of the story. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I hear that in all of the songs that you do, you blend some very interesting rhymes mm -hmm. that might not necessarily go together sometimes, but it's the dialect in which you use that mm -hmm. actually makes the rhyme work. Is that on purpose? Uh, absolutely. I, 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 I'm a lover of words and reading and uh, I, I, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of a hardliner on uh, hard and soft rhymes you know like you would say stay in a way that, that that'd be more of a hard rhyme and then uh stay and take you know which you know soft rhyming and there's there's a lot of soft rhyming but you know that's my own that's my own pet peeve but the i really do, i uh say say like uh, bob dylan is a great great one thing people don't mention much but he's great at uh hard rhymes he really puts them together and he very seldomly uses soft rhymes so uh, he goes out of his way, even with his within his stories, to make sure that, and I do this as well, to to make sure that this hard rhyme not only rhymes perfectly, but but uh, it works within the narrative. And th those are things that I do do do. I, however, I do get into those kind of lengthy conversations about songwriting where people go, you know, people just don't write songs like they did, and they don't do, tell stories and things like that. Well, the thing is, is songs are songs. And, I mean four-year-olds write songs and they can be fun and funny, you know, and it's not just about one, the one thing. It's actually about uh, provoking some emotion really. And if, if that song provokes emotion, I don't, I don't care if it's, you know, if it's written back backwards and upside down, you know, if it works, it works. Well, there's been so much change, certainly in music in the way that it's marketed and distributed and mm -hmm. monetized. Uh, artists of today really don't make a lot of money by selling albums, CDs, or even any physical product. It's all video and audio streams that somebody's paying for each time somebody accesses you. Mm -hmm. How important in your world are single songs today versus what we might have known as an album of music not too long ago? Mm -hmm. um, I believe that there's a, a, a new, uh, it's a new day in the world of music and that that is Truly, the the new model to be following is is work really more on single songs like they did in the fifties and the sixties. However, um, I don't think the whole that whole notion has really caught up with the music industry at large. Uh, definitely, you know, with uh, younger artists, they're putting out single songs or uh, seven inch EP things. You know, five songs, and um, I do believe that that's that's the future uh, as far as things go however as far as the 
the money goes, um, the one of the uh, one of the, the ratios that that I, I, I point to is one percent of the artists uh, collect ninety five percent of the streamed and, and music going off over the over, over the internet, right? Wow. That, uh, well, I mean, if you think about it, you know, uh, you have Beyonce or Taylor Swift or Kanye, you know, people listen to thousands and thousands of those, and that actually adds up to a lot of money. But um, when you're talking about, you know, ar artists that just don't have that uh, exposure, um, there's not enough of those plays to actually, you know, definitely not make a living. And um, so uh, it depends uh, my, my existence and a ton of ton, ton of people I know and just that or I don't know uh, make their money um, touring and they would be touring acts like you would say uh, you know B.B. King was a touring act or Willie Nelson is still a touring act or uh, Neil Young uh, there's you know and they tour constantly and that's a that's a that's a money thing but that's also you know some people are meant for the stage and they love the stage so between those two things, it, those things work out. Well, uh, as the, I know, the days I, of the de deriving real money from royalties, from records, and from songs, that sort of really started taking a nosedive about 2005. Yeah. Well, albums are coming back. Are mm -hmm. you enjoying this resurgence of vinyl? And, and how are you participating in this? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm trying to participate, but the, 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 the word is, is and we've worked in, worked into this and checked. I've checked it out through some other record companies. Checked it out individually. Uh, vinyl is at a premium right now, and they are all the vinyl places uh, are backlogged. And if you like, if you wanted to put out a bill album right now, you have to get in line. Like you, you know, the best restaurant in town or something. You have to get in line, and they, probably somebody would tell you. Bill, we probably couldn't get you a uh, vinyl out till maybe, maybe December, but most likely to be the first quarter of next year. Wow. Mm -hmm. So of course, that's an eternity in music, but it uh, yeah. some uh, people may have to wait. It's a, it's a make or break time, you know? Absolutely. Indeed. We'll be back for the second half right after this. Hi, this is Bill Gertine. I've been training the ticket sales departments of sports and entertainment for almost 20 years, and I love what I do. But everywhere I went, the story was always the same. We loved what you did. You got us fired up. But after a while, we kind of lost the spark and we went back to the same old, same old. Well, not anymore. ISBI 360 is the first and only digital training network created exclusively for the specific long-term career needs of sports and entertainment professionals. Our seven different unique certification programs include the fundamentals of success in the industry, like ticket sales, sponsorships, social media, customer service, and leadership, all trained by industry experts like Brett Zelaski, Debbie Nolan, Misha Scher, and Seth Rabinowitz. ISBI 360 uses a unique four-stage learning process, including cutting-edge micro-learning videos, live recorded role plays, live coaching from industry experts, and an ongoing reinforcement program to make sure the learning sticks and forms the habits that your people need to grow and excel faster. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Check out what's different about ISBI 360 today. 
Well, you mentioned the live portion that people are really relying on as musicians to make their living and festivals are potentially coming back this year. But even Mm -hmm. that is somewhat up in the air. You've been on both sides of the equation. You've been a producer, you've been a performer, you've been all of this. What, in your opinion, are festivals going to look like this summer and in the foreseeable future? They will still be socially distanced, maybe brought together a little closer. There will be much, much more uh, safeguards around the whole thing. Uh, Ticket prices are going to be higher. And um, all of these will be in probably in venues, not experimental venues. I mean, venues like uh, Red Rocks or the Gorge or uh, any of the the famous outdoor festivals that, that people put on uh, uh, Bonnaroo, that kind of thing. I don't know exactly the state of those, but I, I do know talking to some, I, I just got off a, a short tour that was over in North Carolina and uh, Virginia. And um, the, the, when I, in, during my conversations with some of the people that were putting that on, including just the, the roadies that were putting together the stage and everything, everybody would be like this, the favorite term these days is cautiously optimistic. Uh, there's a, there's a certain amount of optimism now. It was, it was, it, that was not there. I would say back in October. And uh, I think uh, people are kind of ready and hoping that it will even open up more by say midsummer. Yeah. But you mentioned ticket prices and the fact that they may be a little higher going forward. What does the general public not understand about how much it costs to put a show on? Well, if you go to a festival, everything you see costs money, yeah, you know, and da- down to, you know, just even uh, the chalk lines that they make to move you this way or that way. And all the people around that, um, the, the site costs, a lot, the sites a lot of times cost a lot more money than you would think they cost. And um, uh, also because um, there was a big slowdown and a lot of people went out of business in the world of uh, staging, uh, there's a fewer stages. So those, those people, actually, they've got more work than they can stand. And so they can up their price. So that's, that's going on across the board. And that's going on across the music, music industry all together. I mean, every, every sector of the music industry has lost a huge portion of their world. Uh, my best example is the bus business is like there are, there are acres and acres of bus companies with buses all, all there, just they're, they're there. So they're just sitting there and they've been sitting and the worst thing you can do with the bus is let it sit because they, they don't, they're not really great at keeping themselves together during time. Right. Uh, so um, there are sectors that just have almost been eviscerated. I was talking to a banker friend of mine out in Marfa. His name is uh, Chip Love. He's a really funny guy. And he called me up and he goes, Robert Earl, uh, you know, uh, I was looking at the financial pages today and uh, it seems like your uh, music uh, entertainment sector is, is on the bottom of the whole list. And I said, I said you're not telling me anything, Chip, please. <laughs> Come <laughs> was, join me. I, I was going to have a good day today. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you go forward, certainly you as a, a solo artist and a performer and a self-promoter, have seen that show promoters are now requiring their artists to act like promoters themselves. They use their own, ask them to use their own social media and really get out there and almost do part of their job. And they're kind of relying on the artists in the past where maybe they took over the whole marketing before, mm-hmm. you know, they'd put all the radio on themselves. They do all the print things. And, uh, and, and 
let's talk a little about your brand, however, because a large part of your success has been because of your ability to brand yourself and your product. What are some of the things that you would tell others that would need to happen for them in order for their brand to catch fire and become successful? Okay, well, uh, let's just start with this picture right here. I spent an, I spent a little time doing this because I believe, like in the video world or in just in, in regular picture taking world, that you shouldn't have trees coming out of the back of your head, or you shouldn't have you shouldn't have it shouldn't be wobbly back there or anything. So, like as you can see, I got a white background, and all you can see is me. And so, uh, one of the things is like uh, as far as the branding is 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 best you can without being a, a t total egomaniac. Uh, put yourself front and center, you know, and um, and also make sure that when you start out, that whatever, if it's a band name or it's your name or whatever, it's clear and clean. It's best if it's clever. Let, I mean, the obvious example is the Beatles. I mean, my God, the Beatles, you know, coming off the crickets, but they're the B-E-A-T-L-E-S Beatles, right? I mean, I don't think anybody ever got better than that as far as the name of a band. And um, so has to be clear, readable, people understand it. And once you can establish it, then um, for everything you've got in you, make sure that you stick with it, no matter what the opposition is looking like. You know, people change their mind. That change in the mid-career mid stuff, it that doesn't seem to work. Not, not, not a lot of real successful people change stuff in mid-career. I mean, even even the uh, the artist formerly known as Prince went back to Prince, you know. So um, you have to do that. And then I think you support it with everything you can do, which would be like uh, your merchandising, the posters. There's a certain amount of quality control as far as between promoters and the artists where, you know, they say, hey, how about this poster? I'm like, yeah, but my name is tiny here. You know, nobody can see my name. What are you doing here? You know, or uh, they just, you know, they just don't put that whole thing front and center. So you've got to, there's a certain amount of dil due diligence as an artist that you should really be checking that sort of stuff out, you know, and then like, you know, putting out merchandise, you put out a blurry image or something that doesn't work. So everything should be clear and clean. You know, think in terms of like, I love that. I love that line in um, this uh, this movie Margin Call where Jeremy Irons says, talk to me like I'm a four-year-old or a golden retriever, right? <laughs> That's a great line, and I know exactly the film you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've adapted and evolved with the times as well. You didn't stick with what you'd been doing 20 years ago. You just started a podcast mm -hmm. not too long yes. ago called the Americana Podcast, the 51st State uh, how has that become a part of your overall branding effort? And why did you start it? Well, uh, my producer here that you talked to earlier, uh, uh, it was her idea. She said that we should do this. And I, I was like, oh, you know, I've got plenty on my plate. But the idea of um, our mission statement is to explore and find and expand Americana as a genre and uh, have people understand it through um well, more or less my filter in that I think it's broader than a lot of times it's projected. And uh, so I get to uh, interview people and um, uh, do the, and she does all the write-ups back and uh, on the, on the front end and on the back end. It's an hour show. It's interviewing most of the time with one particular artist and they're within Americana. They go from, you know, uh, bands that started out being punk bands that, kind of soften their sound or change their sound a little bit to people that were full-blown country that became, you know, more or less kind of freeform 
singers. Uh, there, I, I have of the twenty-eight episodes we've done so far. I think we've had two people. When I ask them this question, when I ask them, uh, "Do you consider yourself Americana?" They say yes. Everyone else went. Uh, you know, yeah, I kind of, I like, you know, Americana. Well, what is Americana? You know, so we go into all of that. Uh, but it gave me a chance to like, ha you know, have a voice in the, in the world of Americana. And also, uh, frankly, um, as you get older and you, you know, get mired in all the things that I do, you listen to less and less music. And it gave me a chance to turn back around and pay attention to the music that's going on, which let me say, the music these days from some of these young people is outstanding. It's shockingly great. That's you know, awesome. So I've, I've, you know, come to uh, have this great appreciation for what's coming up and getting to meet all, meet all kinds of people. Cool. Well, as we start opening up again, you may be familiar with the movement there in Austin where a number of club owners came together and wrote a manifesto of sorts for their fans, letting them know that even though the governor is letting everybody in at 100%, that they were not. And there were safety measures that they spelled out that all of these clubs were willing to adhere to. Have you been following that story? And, and what are your thoughts on how that might be modeled elsewhere throughout the country? I, I haven't followed it, Bill, but I, I, I know the story. I, I've heard some of it. And um I think what they're trying to do, and it's a good idea, is reassure people that they still have your back. You know, as far as an audience, they they're gonna they're gonna make sure it's okay. Because I want to say there's a a large large, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, there's a large group of people that just can't go out. They just don't want to go out. They're too afraid, and they need all the reassurance they possibly can. And, and these people are, that I know, some of them are musicians. Some of them are just music lovers, and they just, you know, I, I mean, I get calls from, uh, you know, friends, family, other people go, going, what are you doing? I said, look, I'm making it as careful as I can. I'm, you know, we vet these shows that we did in 2020. We, we spent an inordinate amount of time making sure that everybody in the band's going to be safe. I'm going to be safe. Everything's going to be okay. Best we can. Right. I mean, there's, you know, there's always the X factor. So um, uh, the fact that uh, these, there's that huge population that really, I don't know. I don't hear, I just hear from them personally. I don't hear about them on the news or anything. It's they, they really, really are worried about getting sick. Just not, it's not about anything, but them getting sick. They can't afford to get sick, you know? So um, they don't go out. And so uh, what they're doing is telling people, we got your back. Yeah. Well, beyond the health and safety of your fans and those who follow you, are there any other trends or storylines in entertainment that you're watching closely right now? The one that I, as far as like, um, uh, it, it's not a news trend, but the one that I've uh, really discovered and in a big way, on almost a tsunami way, uh, is that people are uh, changing the rules and they spent all of 2020 working th some, some stuff backwards in that like uh, there are, like you were, you referred to earlier about uh, promoters putting the on onus on the artist. Um, there's a lot of that going on. They're like, you know, they, they, I don't know what their mindset is, but what is happening is we're, our responsibility as artists now becomes our responsibility as artist promoter. So if we want to really make it happen, they want us to, you know, promote, they're checking out our numbers, our analytics on, you know, all the social medias, 
A lot of times you're getting actually invited because of those things. And so if you do have, you know, if you have a, you know, a, a lively presence on some of that, you might be ahead of a, the next person on that. And then they want you to, um, they want you to join in, but it's across the board. My bank sent me this thing. I've been like a platinum member of my bank forever. It says, you're no longer a platinum member. You are a consumer customer. I said, okay, really? No kidding. <laughs> and so I, I can see um, there were, a, there was across the board. I think a lot of people that, you know, kept their employees on God bless them and kept them going. Most, a lot of their, um, you probably hear some of this for sure. Right. That, that a lot of their, um, the goal was to, you know, cut back on some of the perks and things that people get on things right. and, and slim down. Uh, I, I, one of these shows we just did on the Southeast, I went up and made a little speech before the show, just once again, to kind of just reassure people. And I said, you know, everybody's changing the rules. So, Hey, I'm joining in here. Here, here are my rules for this show. Uh, Sing as loud as you possibly can when you get a chance because singing makes you feel good. Be like a bluegrass audience and clap enthusiastically after every, after every solo. Once in the show, close your eyes and think how great it is to hear music in the air again. And most of all, enjoy yourselves. <laughs> and that, that was my set of rules. So I was sort of like, you know, going upstream, but it, it was, uh, it, people did enjoy that. They were, it did set up the show really well that way. That's great. You know, you've probably got one of those personalities that just spontaneously has done some things throughout your career on stage mm -hmm. that really got the crowd going. And you thought, wow, I really had a thought about that before. I'd have probably done that lots more than that. What can you think of a thing or two that you've done in your career and your performing that you just think, wow, I should have been doing that a lot earlier that just kind of spontaneously happened. I played in a place in Mississippi one time it was a terrible room. It sounded terrible. The sound man was terrible. Everything, and but the audience was nice. You know, they were really wanting to hear some music. So I went, and we went about third way through the show. I said, "I tell you what, we're going to do. There's a big old porch out there. We're we're just going to grab our instruments. We're going to go out there, and y'all can stand out on the porch or stand stand out there on the curb and listen to us play." So we finished the rest of the show just like that because it was just like you know it wasn't working, and I wanted it to work, and I wanted these people to get their money's worth. Not a great example. And, and you took matters into your own hands. You didn't criticize the person in charge. You just took control of the situation and made it your control. That's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it doesn't behoove one to yell at a sound man or a monitor man. Let me say that in my business. <laughs> They've got the control. We'll let them go. You know, just, just do what you need to do. That's great. As you're looking at what's happening in music today, and, and, and if you're looking at an entertainment company, a venue, maybe an artist that you think is doing things right right now, who comes to mind for you? I, I don't know her. I don't really follow her, but whatever Lana Del Rey is doing, she's done it really well. It's amazing. I mean, she started out really as a YouTube artist and she just keeps bumping it up. It's, uh, it's impressive. Cool. Somebody we should look up if you haven't known Lana Del Rey. Mm -hmm. So this is yeah, a, there's a good name too. I mean, you can read that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So it's such a unique time for entertainment in general. What do you think this situation has given the entertainment industry a chance to do that may never come again to maybe rethink itself, to purge itself or to, to redo something that maybe will never come again. Is there a window of opportunity right now that you see somewhere? Um, there's definitely a window 
an opportunity for more internet presence, as particularly about um, an artist uh, promoting themselves or the or the record company helping them promote themselves on the internet. I I, I do think that this window will has opened up um, a new day of um, video production and um, and, and uh, just uh, everything that you can put you know visually on a on a screen. Um, I don't, you know, it remains to be seen um, artistically what it will be. I mean, there's going to be a huge pile of content coming at us, you know, I mean, and not, a, not just this, but plays, books, any, almost any, any visual arts at all. It's just, it's going to be a flood of content probably starting in the summer and it's going to just keep coming. So I, I think um, we may see, you know, a, a, a whole new day as far as, um, some really, really great ideas in the world of uh, artistic endeavor and creativity. And what's Robert Earl Keen working on right now that we can expect in the next several months? Ooh, uh, well, um, I did. I, I built a video studio, Snake Barn Movie Ranch Studios, out at the place that we used to live uh, um, out in the country, and um, shot a bunch of videos and uh, did one full-length twenty-hour-long uh, video with uh, B-roll and introduction and and you know some fun you know uh, blooper kind of stuff at the end and uh, it was all new content but I also on this one um, I thought the same with the same thought I just talked about about uh, the people around you making you know um, is I included all the band so I said you know you guys bring bring songs in and we're just going to do them and they said are you going to sing them and I said no no you're going to sing them and we're just going to all play together and just play like people think that you are like you, you know, you're a band, you hang out, play songs together. So, uh, so we did, so we did that and it's called Western chill and uh, it, um, it'll be out. Uh, it will be out in the world digitally midsummer and sometime either December or, or the first quarter of next year, I'll get a vinyl on it, Bill. So <laughs> Get in line. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I've got, I always like to wrap up these podcasts with, throwing a few surprise fill in the blank sort of questions for you. So these are rapid fire, just yeah. whatever comes off the top of your head. If you're all right. Yes, sir. All right, good. Your favorite binge watch during the pandemic. The, uh, uh, the Queens Gambit. Oh, sure. Besides entertainment, the one thing you've missed most during COVID. Um, it, it, it real exercise, outdoor exercise. The board game you thought would never see the light of day from your closet that saw some action in 2020. Not a board game player. Did, did, not, did, not, did not play. Didn't, I, have to go to, I have to go to my daughter, Chloe, for that. She <laughs> plays a lot of time. No problem. Uh, your favorite musical artist on your workout mix? Um, it's usually the person that I'm talking to about. Lately, it's been Brent Cobb. He's a great songwriter. Favorite stage to play worldwide, bar none. Mm, you know that's a tough question there bill i don't know uh, they uh, oh I'll, let me say my it's a festival but it's a stage as well so um in golden gate park in october there's a thing called hardly strictly bluegrass festival and it's three days and it's free so they have 100 artists it's free it's been it's been funded by a venture capitalist from the 70s who went ahead and after he passed away created a trust so they put put it there and Three quarters of a million people come through there on that weekend. And that's, that's great. Fantastic. Yeah. Cool. Uh, 
Favorite session player that no one has ever heard of before? Whoa, good question. Um, God, uh, God that, that's a, that's a t- tough, tough, tough question there. Um, man, I am drawing a blank on that one. Well, there's certainly a lot of them, and I don't mean to put you on the spot too badly, but I, you've probably no, but been exposed a, a to a number question, of them. And I don't know why I can't just grab on to – well, uh, let's say little known, um, a little-known player uh, who I consider the greatest banjo player in the world, Danny Barnes. Excellent. Banjo. Good. The sit-down restaurant you've ordered takeout from most often instead of dining in? Uh, Francisco's. Very good. Favorite comedian or comedian? Oh, I have so many of them, you know. Uh, I, let's go with Stephen Wright. Excellent. The biggest hurdle you have to overcome in the next six months? Um, I, there are uh, many of them. Um, I would have to say, uh, I would have to say getting to the end of the next, this six months and figuring out what I'm going to have to do in the next six months. <laughs> That's my biggest hurdle. That suffices. One last thing. Your one bold prediction for entertainment going forward. That is a really good question as well. Um, I would say there's going to be, um, my bold prediction is is the the time of the independent, almost totally independent artist is this will be the golden era of, of the independent artist. That's a, I, I think we'll take that. That's a very, I think, a bold and a realistic prediction going forward. And gosh, we have been so graced with your presence. We so appreciate you. Singer, songwriter, entertainer, producer, businessman, Robert Earl Keen. Where can they find more about you and your music? Uh, well, robertrokeen.com is uh, my website. Uh, the, as you mentioned, the Americana podcast, um, I'm on there. And, but robertrokeen.com pretty much tells you what you need. Um, and then I have an Instagram, robertrokeen1. Uh, well, that's terrific. Well, his road goes on forever, and I hope you all will appreciate him. Robert Rokeen, thanks so much for being a guest on The Crowdmakers. Yegum. If you enjoyed the program, please like us, share us with those you know, and hit subscribe on the podcast, and we'll let you know when another new episode is dropped. Your positive comments will help keep the Crowdmakers on the air. We'd be grateful for your five-star review. Got someone you'd like to hear as a guest on the Crowdmakers? Let us know, and we'll do our best to reach out to them. Drop us a note at info at isbi360.com. That's info at isbi360.com. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the first and only digital training network for sports and entertainment professionals. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Our chief engineer of the Crowdmakers is Ken Marinelli. Sean Quinn is our director of operations. Mark Yazowitz is the digital platform guru. And the executive producer of The Crowdmakers is Doug Quinn. I'm Bill Gertine. Until next time, thanks for listening, and so long for now. This is The Crowdmakers on the C-Suite Radio Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.